please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 8 through 12 in our study, God and his elect exiles. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is page 954 in the Black Pew Bibles. As it was said previously, if you don't own a Bible, please take that one home. Read and reread it. Monday, May 1st, 2023, almost two weeks ago. Do you remember what you were doing? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but a good friend of mine and a fellow pastor in the Chicagoland area, I don't think he's going to forget what happened 13 days ago. Him and his family were at their home. And they heard a loud noise as a large brick was thrown through their car windshield. Then a giant stove, stone paver was thrown through their front glass door. Pastor Brandon, the pastor of Christ the King, Reformed Baptist Church in Niles, gave me permission to share with you all this very unfortunate event. And the reason I share it with you is not only so that you would pray for him and his family, but that you would know that as we read 1 Peter chapter 3, religiously motivated persecution still exists. It might show up on your front door. In this case, nine years ago, Pastor Brandon was pastoring another church in the area. And this gentleman who did this recent act of vandalism and hate crime, had a confrontation over the Bible that led him to make serious death threats against Brandon and his family. They put a restraining order on this gentleman and hadn't seen him for nine years. Fast forward to May 1st, Monday, 2023. He's back. He found out where they live. They've been living there just for two years. They just had a brand new baby. Could you imagine being in their shoes? Praise the Lord, no one was hurt. They called the police. The man fled. They made their report. The man came back. Before he could do anything else, the police apprehended the man, and he's been in jail ever since. Brandon and I were texting and talking with one another, praying for each other. To get to the seriousness of this, I thought this statement made, according to this gentleman, during the bond hearing, he said, this family, speaking of Brandon, is everything that is wrong on this earth, and I must do whatever I can to rid them. I should have just gone in there and killed all of them. Religiously motivated persecution is not something 2,000 years old. The same gentleman was already on bail for putting swastikas on a church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I wonder, for you and me, if when you read the Bible, sometimes the idea of loving one's enemy, even when they persecute you for being a Christian, can sometimes think, like it's far off. 
It's a lot closer to home than sometimes we think. Let's read God's word together and answer this question. What should Brandon and his wife and his children do in response to this man? More importantly, what should you and I do when we are persecuted for our faith? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, anyone? Thanks be to God indeed, amen? Your one-sentence summary of this text I just read is that brotherly love and enemy love are gospel fruit, but our calling is the gospel root. This passage commands and describes both brotherly love and enemy love. These are fruits of gospel truth in a a life of a person. The gospel itself, the calling of God to make someone a new believer, calling. Calling is the root. In case any of you are new to the Christian faith, welcome to this gathering of Christians. We gather every Sunday on the Lord's Day because we believe that fundamentally the Bible is a message of news. Not good advice, not how to live, first and foremost news of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the root of everything that we should sing, the root of everything that we should do, all of our praying that we've done today is based upon, predicated, rooted in, the grace of God that he has shown us in Jesus Christ. So may I say from the outset, the Bible does make commands, but those commands are assuming and understanding that you've already read previous statements in 1 Peter, that God has mercifully, graciously saved you. That's what I mean by the root, the gospel takes root in one's heart by God's grace alone. And through that grace, it produces the fruit of good works. The works that can be summarized in our text as love. Brotherly love in verse 8, enemy love in verse 9, all centered upon, rooted in a calling, a gospel calling. That's the big idea of today's message, so let's just break them into two simple parts to make sure you understand that what I just said to you is not Phil's idea, but
but God's through the inspired author Peter. First, let's understand the fruit of the gospel. Brotherly love and enemy love are fruits of a changed human being that has received the gospel, has faith and hope in the second coming of Jesus. They've been born again to a new life. What, what does that look like when someone has been changed and transformed in that way, who has received the gospel? Well, our text says, starting with verse 8, finally, all of you, five adjectives. There's no verbs here. It's finally, all of you, unity of mind, adjective number one, sympathy, number two, brotherly love, that's number three, a tender heart, that's number four, and a humble mind, number five. Finally, all of you. Did you notice that love was the third and center of this passage? I think you could sum up the whole passage, verse 8, with love, brotherly love. The first and last adjectives both are about a mindset, unity of mind and a humility of mind. They're like bookends of these five adjectives. The second and the fourth adjectives are both about your heart a sympathy, and a tender compassion in one's heart. Mindset, heart orientation, love. I don't think that's an accident. It's a common way of writing in both Old and New Testaments. Authors like to take things, and I call it a little sandwich. Two slices of bread, peanut butter, jelly, and then in the middle, throw in a banana. It's delicious, I tell you. I call it the PBJB, peanut butter, jelly, and banana. The heart of that sandwich is the banana. The heart of verse 8 is love. In fact, all of the other things are just expressions of love. If Jesus was to summarize every commandment in all of the Bible, he would summarize it with love. Love God supremely and a second just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. As I thought about this list of these five adjectives, the fruit of the gospel for Christians I immediately thought about our church covenant embassy, embassy church. Those of you who have been baptized upon your profession of faith, you have been saved by the root of the gospel truth. By God's grace, we promise together first two things. Do you remember them? Walk together in unity. Unity of mind. One mind. Why do we sing these songs this morning? So that together our voices would become one. So that even though each of you are individuals, we became one when we all said amen at the end of a prayer. It's a good little practice, by the way. When we're in corporate prayer, when you're praying with somebody out loud, when they're done, if you did agree with all of it, just say amen. Let's practice. Father, glorify your son. Amen? Amen. That means we're one in that prayer. Unified in corporate worship is a way to make us more increasingly one, even with our distinct, unique differences. The oneness of this gathering should be exercised regularly by truth, not by circumstance. All of you, he says, all of you, finally, all of you, be unified in love. The reason he says finally is not because he's one of those preachers. I might be guilty of this, where you say finally, and then the sermon goes on for 20 more minutes. It's finally, I'm done this section of the letter, 
which began in verse 13. If you drop your eyes to chapter 2, verse 13, you'll see he says, be subject or submissive for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Then look at verse 18. Servants, be subject or submissive to your masters. And then likewise, chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, be subject or submissive to your own husbands. And then likewise, husbands, here's how you are to live. So first, servants, then wives, then husbands, and then finally, all of you. Meaning, everything that he just said about husbands, wives, and slaves, he's now going to reiterate and say, by the way, this is true for every single one of you who are receiving this letter. Are there different kinds of people in the church? Yeah, there's some that are servants. Probably 50% of the Roman Empire was slaves or servants. Some of them might have been masters. Some of them might have been wives. Some of them might have been husbands. Children. Grandparents. Does that describe any of you? Mothers. Happy Mother's Day today. In our country, we celebrate mothers. Happy Mother's Day to all of you that are in this room. But before we get carried away with Mother's Day, let us be reminded that God's word says the most important identity you have as a mother is not your earthly motherhood, rather your heavenly calling your citizenship in heaven. And in fact, you sit next to other people in this room and you share more in common with them, not because they're also a mother, but because they're a Christian. Do you believe in that kind of unity? Heavenly identity surpasses earthly identity. This is one of the central themes of this letter, which is why I think before he moves on to another point, he wants to say, finally, what I've been saying about slaves, what I've been saying about wives, what I've been saying about husbands is true for all of you. As a little side note, for those of you that were here last week or for those of you that look up at the passage and think, hmm, seems like Peter's picking on women. That's just what those Bible authors like to do. Pick on women, tell them to submit. No. He's telling all of us are to have a submissive posture to the government authorities, to our, slave, uh, our servant uh, masters, if we're a slave. And then husbands, you're supposed to treat your wife like Christ would treat the church as a, as a co-heir. You're to lay down your life for her, even though he doesn't quite say all of those things. He is saying every single person in the church is to be submissive. All of you. Submit yourself to one another with brotherly love. first thing that our church covenant says is that we should have unity in the spirit and in the bond of peace. A church can't be a church unless there's unity. In a day and age where people are making billions of dollars because of people arguing on the internet, how refreshing could it be if we, by God's grace, would live out our calling of being people who are unified instead of divided? even though we have different earthly identities, men and women, old, young, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, one in Jesus Christ. That's the vision. That's the calling. That's the reality. That's our covenant as a church. To be a member of embassy is to first and foremost sign up and say, I want to be one in a family. That secondly, second commitment Unity, love. Walk together in brotherly love and affectionate care, rebuking, correcting, and training those for righteousness. This is what we've signed up for, Embassy. We have seven other things we listed in the covenant, but the first two are right here in our text, aren't they? 
Unity expressed in love. Affectionate care. Family-like love. Do you think it would be weird if I started calling you brothers and sisters? Or is that okay? I think it's okay. I think it's actually helpful to be reminded. Even if it sometimes feels a little forced or awkward. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. Our heavenly identity in this room is greater than our earthly one. And therefore, we are brothers and sisters. Oh, I hope some of you get this idea. Love it, affirm it, amen it, rejoice in it, but more importantly, live it out. We desperately need churches in this day and age that are not places for entertainment, but they are places for deep-rooted love for one another. Community, friendship, care. I hope all of you in this room who are members of this church will know that we're serious about these things. Maintaining unity and loving you ferociously. As an elder, I just want you to know that this is why we pray for you. This is why I'm here. It is my job to do as much as I can to lead the way and point you to the scriptures like I am now to say, embassy, this is not a thing I do by myself, but rather lead and guide and encourage and exhort. So all of you, not just some of you, all of you, join a church if you're not currently a member of a local church. Be like-minded. That's another way to interpret the first adjective of one mind, like-minded. And care about other people more than you'd care about yourself. It's actually amazing when you're not only receiving that, but even when you're giving it. There's a lie out there in the world, and it's that you're going to find the greatest joy when you get. But Jesus himself showed that he came not to be served, but to serve the greatest joy-filled human that ever walked this earth. Gave. The fullness of joy comes when we give of ourselves with sympathy, putting ourselves in someone else's shoes, like Pastor Brandon and his wife. Sympathy, compassion. My wife and I, after we heard this news, we spent a lot of time talking, thinking, what must that be like? What must that feel like? I hope that it is clear to you that to be a Christian is to be one who has been changed by the love of God in Christ Jesus that it just compels us to love others. If the God of the universe would so come down in the person of Jesus Christ and put himself in our shoes and die in our place, how much more should we spend time just at least in simple prayer for other people to think what they're going through, to reach out and encourage them, I hope that one of the takeaways from this sermon will be that you will, even though some of you don't even know Pastor Brandon, pray for them. They're trying to think through a lot of difficult decisions. Should they move? What if this guy gets out in three weeks? What if he doesn't get sentenced for anything? I think we should pray for their, their protection, but we should pray for their faith. We should pray for their love for this man. Because we're not just called to love one another, the brothers and sisters, we are called to do that. 
We are described as people who do do those things. But notice that our text, secondly, in verse 9 says, enemy love. Do not repay evil for evil, verse 9, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. More than likely, this is Peter's own way of summarizing the teaching of Jesus from Luke chapter 6. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. How in the world would you have the ability to have somebody come to your house, destroy your car, break through your front door, make murderous threats for over nine years, repeat them again two weeks ago, and have the ability to bless them? I believe that what Peter is saying here, as it relates to what Jesus says, is that you should pray. The bless here is pray for them. How do you have a heart, a disposition, an attitude of not just fear or anger or vengeance? How, how is this even possible? Is Jesus crazy? Has he spent any time with humans? If somebody says something mean to you, you quickly lash back. It's, it's kind of like built in. This is just how we respond so many times. Brothers and sisters of Embassy Church, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, take that and bless to the heavens. The response should be not ill will, but pray that God would pour down his mercy on your enemies. This is precisely what Brandon needs, prayers to be faithful to do that. He needs a lot of other things, wisdom to know what to do next, know how to protect his family, how to navigate the next season of life. New baby, just bought it, this new house, loves his neighborhood. Do not repay evil for evil reviling for reviling but on the contrary have a heart that's so transformed by the gospel that you can look at your enemy's picture and pray for their well-being can you think of any other ethical system that has ever been given to the world that goes this deep love your enemies i think this is what makes christianity stand out the fruit the proof is in the pudding, as they say. When Christians have been so changed and transformed from the heart that they don't just begrudgingly go through the motions. If you've ever had this kind of situation actually come into your life where somebody who would have been your enemy, who wants to get you, hurt you, do you think that it's just a matter of like, okay, I'm going to pray for them. Willpower will last for a day or two. You prayed. This is about a heart that truly loves even your worst enemy. So, how? Why? Do you remember the big idea? Brotherly love and enemy love are the fruit. The root is the gospel call. That's what Peter says. Notice that I stopped midway through verse 9. Read the rest of the text, and let's think about this idea of calling and how it changes one's heart, changes one's whole life. 
Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless them. Because for the reason why you should do these things is because this is what you were called. So that you may obtain a blessing for, and then he quotes Psalm 34, which we just had read for us earlier. I think the main explanation, ground, reason, is the calling, which is further elaborated with the blessing, which is further elaborated with the psalm. So you could start with the psalm and say, Psalm 34. Peter's thinking about it. He already quoted it earlier. Look at 1 Peter 2.3. Notice that we should hunger the pure spiritual milk of God's word if indeed you've tasted that it is good. You ever heard that before? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Where's that come from? Anyone? Psalm 34. He's got Psalm 34 on his mind. And that's why he's quoting it. It's the longest quote in the whole letter. And it's not because it's a little proof text because the psalm talks about good days and evil and about how to talk to people. It's because the theme of Psalm 34 is when David is being persecuted. David is being reviled. David is being religiously maligned. And so David turns to the Lord. And instead of repaying evil for evil, instead of using his tongue for evil, he pursues God, puts his trust in God. Question, did God deliver David? Answer, he did. Fast forward the story. David had a great, 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 great son, grandson. His name's Jesus Christ. In the line of David, there was another one who would be the king of the Israels, Israelites. Jesus Christ would be the one who would also be experiencing maligning, mistreatment, reviling. And what did he do? He did not revile in return. He did not repay evil for evil. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Like a sheep led to its shearers, so Jesus became the innocent, suffering servant who was led to the slaughter and died on the cross. And what did God do for Jesus? Did God hear his prayer? He did. He rose him from the dead. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. He then poured out the Holy Spirit so that there would be new creations, new gospel roots in the hearts of a new people. There's a link between David and Israel and God's faithfulness to then Jesus, whose bones would not be broken. John actually quotes Psalm 34 to say Jesus has fulfilled this in his death on the cross. Jesus was the one who was also persecuted and treated this way. And it wasn't just a rock going through his front door. He died on a cross. And God did not leave him there. He rose him from the dead. If God was faithful to David, if God was faithful to Jesus, will God be faithful to this first century church? Answer, yes. That's the logic of why Peter's thinking about Psalm 34. I wonder if any of you when you read the Bible, you understand that kind of logic. It's, it's very important to read the Bible in its context and see that Peter's thinking about God's faithfulness through the ages and is encouraging a people that are afraid, who are being persecuted. So imagine, Brandon, imagine you in your house 
and somebody painting swastikas, throwing rocks through windows, making death threats. What should you do? First and foremost, hope in the gospel. Put your trust in the God who is the just judge who will vindicate you even if your life were to be taken. Even if the man were to get through the door and rid them of the earth. That's not the end of the story. That's just a short and momentary ending, pause of earthly life. But there will be new resurrection life because as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we have now through the resurrection of Jesus a living hope and an inheritance. And that word inheritance is directly linked to our text about calling. The ESV unfortunately translates the word obtains. So look down at verse 9 and notice that the so that, the reason, the ground, the why you and I should ever live with brotherly love or enemy love is because we have been called and been given an inheritance. Let me read the text in the way that it's literally written. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you will inherit a blessing. The root of gospel fruit that displays itself with brotherly love and enemy love is the calling of becoming a Christian, the calling of following Jesus Christ, the calling of faith and trust in the hope of the resurrection of Jesus. And it's linked to this idea of inheritance which is why you and I can know that the way to read verse 9 is not to say this. We should love our enemies and bless them because God called us to do that action so that we would earn or obtain the blessing of salvation, of, of long life, of prosperous good days, of eternal life. That's not the way to read this text. And the reason you know that is because he's making sure you understand that you have inherited that blessing. How do you inherit your family's wealth? Like if your mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, they pass away. What do they do with all of their material possessions? They pass them down to their children. That's what we mean by an inheritance. Did you work for it? Did you earn it? Were you a good little boy or girl throughout your life? And so grandma and grandpa wanted to give you an inheritance. No, it's because of the family that you were born into. And so in the same way, this illustration is to tell you that the calling is a gospel call of salvation, of God's sheer mercy and grace. That when Jesus Christ died, it's like mom and dad were filthy rich and then they poured out that inheritance and gave the whole thing to you. When Jesus Christ died, it unleashed the Holy Spirit, a much greater possession, the possession of God's presence in our heart. So think about this idea of inheritance, and very practically on a how level. How would you show love to an enemy that shows up at your front door? How would you actually pray for them for their well-being? It happens when you remember, oh yeah, I was an enemy of God. And in God's kindness, he loved me. 
While I was a sinner, he sent forth his son to die for me and take on the punishment of all my sins on the cross. He did that for me so that I could receive the inheritance of new life in him. That's the source of strength. It's the source of hope. And it's the reason any of us could have any ability to actually love, not just the people sitting around us with brotherly love, but of the most severe cases, love our enemies. If you can do the enemy love, how much easier would it be the brotherly love? Work from the greater to the lesser. Figure out, as a homework assignment, the logic of 1 Peter chapter 3. How, why, should you love your enemies? Every other love will become easy after that. Loving your spouse, loving your mom and dad, your children, your neighbor, loving one another in this room. If we have the ability to love our enemy, what more difficult love could we be asked of? And the solution, the answer to the how and the why is the gospel, the calling that's attached to the new birth and the resurrection of Jesus that comes with an inheritance way better than rich grandma or grandpa. And if you knew that you were receiving an inheritance, a fat sum of money, quite literally in this world, how would you feel about your finances? I, I would think you would feel pretty smug, feeling good. Well, the economy's going bad. I got an inheritance coming. I actually got a down payment already. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. What if you lost your job? I got an inheritance. What if somebody started to make certain threats or steal something from your house? I got an inheritance. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, it's kept. It's protected. It's undefiled. It can't be taken Do you see how the truth of knowing who you are in the family that you are in, in the gospel, roots you in such a way that it changes your heart that it's like, I don't sweat the small stuff because I know my inheritance. I know my calling. I know who I am. So this is what I mean. Brotherly love and even enemy love, they naturally flow out of the spirit of God that has changed a person's inside heart to become new through the calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let me close this message with one direct link to the cross so that you understand that I am not just saying that calling is generally related to the gospel truth, but it is directly related to the gospel. The word this is often debated when we study this text, read commentaries and Bible scholars, they'll ask in verse 9 when it says, but to this you were called. What's the this? And I believe the answer is reviling. It's pointing, I believe, backwards because When was the last time Peter used the word revile and calling? Answer, chapter 2. Turn your eyes to chapter 2 in the section starting in verse 18 where Peter instructs slaves to subject themselves to their masters with all respect. And then in verse 19, he talks about how this is a gracious thing. When you're mindful of God, you endure sorrows. Even when you're suffering 
unjust treatment from your master. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it and you endure? You probably deserved it. But if when you do good and you suffer for doing good and you endure that suffering, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Here's our key verse, verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When we get to verse 9 and he's concluding what he's already been saying, you must, must link the calling of verse 9 of chapter 3 with the calling of chapter 2, verse 21. You've been called to the cross. First, to receive it as a gift. He bore our sins on the tree dying in our place. Second, as a way to live. The fruit of one who has received the cross and the gift of salvation is one who follows in the footsteps of Jesus with self-sacrificial love. Love even to your worst enemy. Do you see what I'm saying about this big idea? It's from the Bible. Peter's telling us, Love one another in the church. Love even your worst enemy. That's the fruit of a person changed and transformed from the inside out because of the cross of Christ and the gospel. You've been called to this. Christ called you with his voice and spoke the truth of this message. And one day, many of you in this room remember that day. You responded with faith and trust and hope. If you're here today and you've never heard the radical message of the gospel, maybe today should be that day where you hear the gospel. God has died on the cross in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, for your sins so that you can become a new person and live radically different. With love toward others, even your enemies. The only way that's even possible is to receive grace. The grace of the gospel needs to be rooted in your heart. The inheritance, it needs to be cashed in. Not just sitting on a piece of paper, but applied. My prayer is that each of us will think about our each unique situations as mothers, as fathers, as husbands, as wives, as church members, as visitors from out of town, wherever you are. We're all different. But we should have this one mind. The gospel saves us and makes us new people, loving people. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for sending your Son into the world to rescue sinners, sinners who are hostile against you, stiff arming and rejecting your ways and your commands and your many blessings and turning them into curses. 
taking the created things that you made for us and ruining this earth and worshiping idols and created things instead of you, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Oh God, we need your grace. And we give you praise that Jesus Christ has demonstrated just how rich and how deep your grace goes into the heart and life of each one of us who would receive it by faith and faith alone. God, would you pour out your spirit on each of us? Would you pour out your spirit on those of us who have come into this room and we know ourselves to not be a Christian, to not be baptized, regular attending church, being people that are not marked by a different kind of love, a love that's not forced, but a love that flows out. Lord, I pray that you would also give your spirit for those of us who are Christians, members of this church. Would you keep us faithful to our covenant promises of unity and brotherly love? Would we love one another very intimately, deeply, affectionately, caring for one another, even if it means rebuke or correction? May we love each other in that sort of way. But most importantly, God, on this particular day, we want to pray for Brandon, we want to pray for his family, and we want to pray that they will be protected, that you would bring forth justice through our justice system, and that you will allow this man to not harm any other people, especially those who name the name of Jesus. Lord, give them wisdom about where they should live. And as our text says, give them a heart that's ready and willing to bless even their very enemy. And may we be inspired by their story and their example as they follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Oh God, give their whole church a kind of unity of love and support for one another. and Help Embassy to be that same kind of community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.